millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.30, Alex of Hesse, Sister Alexandra. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope that you all had a pleasant festive period and have at least some of your resolutions still intact. I'd also like to thank everyone who has sent in new podcast series suggestions. There are some great ideas in there, as well as some that I'd already earmarked, so it's nice to get some validation in there as well. Okay, it's been a little while since we last spent time with Alex and the Romanovs, so let's do a rapid recap. After surviving the 1905 revolution and the humiliating military defeat to Japan, Nicholas went back on most of the promised democratic reforms, leaving Russia with an elected parliament, called the Duma, that had almost no power and little had been done to alleviate the suffering of the people that had initially caused the revolution to break out. His cousins had introduced his wife to the unorthodox preacher Rasputin, whose ability to calm and quote-unquote heal the Tsarevich Alexei had enabled him to penetrate the walls of the Romanov Fortress of Solitude. While Nicholas worked hard with his ministers, he rarely made appearances in public, while Alex seldom emerged from Tsarskoselo, the palace complex 15 miles south of St. Petersburg. Isolated from both the people and the nobility, the imperial family had ensconced themselves on a virtual island inoculated from outside threat, but equally unable to see the chaos into which the empire was about to fall. Forces of revolution were once again gathering, while the storm clouds of war were emerging on the horizon. But before we unleash all of these elements, I'd like to quickly thank my Patreon supporters that keep these episodes coming. If you would like to support the show, then please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, Welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back.
1913 was a momentous year in European history. It is seen as being the last year of the old order, a final 12 months of the near 100-year peace between the two tumultuous world conflicts centred on Europe. In 1913, Europe was a continent dominated by five nations, three of which were ruled by men calling themselves Caesar. The agrarian and semi-industrial nations that had fought the Napoleonic Wars were now industrial behemoths, capable of causing death on a previously unimaginable scale. Nothing symbolised this last year of relative calm before the storm than the 6th of March. 300 years before, Michael I, the first Romanov Tsar, had come to the throne. Since then, Russia had come to conquer an empire that stretched from the Gulf of Finland to the Barents Straits. It had helped defeat Napoleon and establish itself as a great power. The planned celebration of the tercentenary of Romanov rule was years in the making and was spectacular in scope. It was hoped that a bit of splendour, a demonstration of imperial might and magic, would remind the Russian people of why they needed and wanted their Tsar. It all kicked off with a grand procession through St. Petersburg, from the Winter Palace to the Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan. The streets were filled with people, and Nevsky Prospect, the main street in the city, was dripping in the red, white and blue banners of the Romanovs. But while the streets may have looked full to some, and indeed they appear so in some of the newsreels, many were disappointed and even disconcerted with how drab an affair it was. The people did not cheer with any particular vigour. The weather was poor, and the Tsar and his family were separated from the people by soldiers in ranks three deep, perhaps a necessary security measure, but one that vividly demonstrated the lack of trust and the vast gulf that existed between the people of the capital and their Tsar. Things were more magnificent, though, in the cathedral, which was packed with 5,000 guests from all over the empire and the world. Everyone was dressed in their finest clothes, the ladies glittering with precious jewels. It seemed like nothing could spoil this occasion, but, of course, someone did. The front row of seats was reserved for the royal family and the most important and powerful people in the empire. Among them was Prime Minister Mikhail Rodzianko, who had secured prime seats for himself and some political allies with great difficulty. But then, he was alerted that Rasputin, uncharacteristically well-dressed in a traditional Siberian outfit, had sat himself down in his seat. This was no mere rudeness. This was a very public declaration of the position of influence that Rasputin claimed to have. For an aristocrat like Rodzianko, the idea of a mere peasant having the nerve to do such a thing was unthinkable. Moreover, Rodzianko had bought into every story about the Starets, and saw him as an existential threat to Russia and to the church. He insisted that Rasputin had to leave, but he refused, saying, quote, I was invited here by persons more highly placed than you. Rodzianko then became enraged, kicking and striking Rasputin, who responded only by sinking to his knees in prayer. Eventually, he rose to his feet, saying, quote, Lord, forgive him for his sin, before departing in an official car, another gift from Empress Alex. The sound of 5,000 shocked, muttering Russians must have been quite something to behold, 
but they had barely any time to draw breath before the arrival of the royal family. For many people there, this was the first time that they had seen Alex in a very long time, and it may have even been their first glimpse of the children. Alex, as was usual, did not have her heart in the event, with onlookers describing her as looking cold and austere. The congregation must have then been completely shocked to see the eight-year-old Zarevich not walking to his seat, but being carried by a Cossack guard. What was wrong with the next Tsar of Russia? What have we not been told? They were then followed by the daughters, all dressed and made up identically, to the extent that they could barely be told apart. Their appearance was not met by any great cheers, though, despite all the fanfare. And this ambivalent attitude, both by Alex herself and the people in attendance, was repeated over the next few months as the family toured the empire. They met countless people, all dressed in their traditional clothes, and attended balls and theatrical performances put on in their honour. Nikki and Alex had deliberately focused on rural areas rather than urban centres for their visits. They had always had an affinity for the romantic view of the Russian peasant. Simple people fanatically loyal to their father, the Tsar. This left the people of the cities, both elite and worker, feeling snubbed. These rural events were rather better attended, though. Crowds fell to their knees as they went past in the car. They trolled by boat along the Volga, and people waded out into the river to get a closer look. But crucially, the car and boat never stopped to greet these people, and their appearance and conduct was frequently more borne by habit and curiosity rather than any genuine enthusiasm. But Nikki and Alex saw what they wanted to see. Ordinary Russians, not the suspect people of the cities, were turning out and showing appropriate loyalty and devotion to their Tsar. Alex later said to one of her ladies, quote, Now you can see for yourself what cowards those state ministers are. They're constantly frightening the emperor with threats of revolution. And here, you can see it for yourself, we need merely to show ourselves, and at once their hearts are ours. It seems to have passed Alex by here that she was recommending that they show themselves more to the people, something that she resolutely refused to do. Nikki and many of the elites, though, shared this assessment. But to impartial observers, such as the foreign diplomatic corps, it was seen very differently. They saw a people showing lip service to a ruler previously seen as semi-divine. A loyalty that was only skin deep, and a refusal to enter major cities indicative of a fear of the urban worker. Speaking of them, the level of strike action in major cities continued to soar, and violent police and military action against the pickets and demonstrators only made things worse. In 1913, 700,000 Russian workers went on strike. On the eve of war, in 1914, it was over a million. The people of St. Petersburg were erecting barricades in the streets, and roving street mobs were smashing up shop windows. It appeared to some that revolution might once again return to Russia, to finish the work that had been started in 1905. But then, of course, fate intervened, in the shape of a Serbian terrorist-slash-freedom fighter. Now, I've lost count of the number of times where we've discussed the outbreak of the First World War in this season, but this is the first time that we've had someone in one of the principal belligerent nations in a position of influence. So, it's worth going into in a bit of depth. 
Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, was assassinated in Sarajevo on the 28th of June 1914. At the time, Nicholas and Alex were on their annual boat trip in the Gulf of Finland. So Alex would have seen the frantic meetings and conversations her husband was having with his top officials as he sought to pick a way through the mess. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail on the hows and whys of European geopolitics in 1914, but to summarise, Serbia, a Slavic nation within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, wants to break free from their imperial masters. It had turned a blind eye to the revolutionaries in its midst, so Austria-Hungary blamed them as much as the assassins for the killing of their heir to the throne. Therefore, they sought to teach them a lesson and threatened war. Now, Russia had always been the protector of its fellow Slavic nations and had signed a defence pact with Serbia, meaning it was honour-bound to protect her should it be attacked. Austria-Hungary wouldn't be alone either, as she had a defence pact with the German Empire. But their involvement would trigger the participation of France, which had her own defensive alliance with Russia as well. Following? Only the United Kingdom, of all the great powers, was not involved in one of these defence pacts, but she had signed a treaty of friendship with France called the Entente Cordiale, and had been involved in a naval arms race with Germany for many years. Oh, and also they, along with the rest of Europe, had signed a treaty guaranteeing Belgian neutrality, something that would, in the end, lead them into the war. These treaties were all defensive in nature, and were meant to deter war, utilising mutually assured destruction. But that assumes competent and clear-thinking people at the top of all these nations. And, at this crucial time, Europe didn't have that. If Austria-Hungary couldn't be restrained from retaliating against Serbia, or Russia couldn't be restrained from responding with full mobilisation, then a war the likes of which that had never been yet seen was assured. Alex was extremely fearful of the outbreak of war, and so immediately cabled Rasputin, who at the time was in Siberia with his family. But while reading this telegram, he was stabbed in the stomach by a follower of one of his enemies. He was taken to his house to await the arrival of the doctor, who did not arrive for another eight hours. Upon hearing this, Alex frantically dispatched a specialist to Siberia to treat the man she saw as vital to her son's survival. Rasputin did recover, but it meant that, at this crucial time, he was in hospital, unable to influence events. He was ardently opposed to the war, and, if he had been by the Tsar's side, he might have been able to persuade him to act with more caution. But he wasn't, and so while he sent many telegrams and letters, he was too far away to exert enough influence to stop the inexorable slide towards war. On the 16th of July 1914, Austria-Hungary began shelling Belgrade, causing the Serbians to trigger the defence pact with Russia, causing Nicholas to mobilise along their shared border. Kaiser Wilhelm gajoled, sweet-talked and threatened, but he couldn't prevent it. And neither could Alex, who stormed into Nicholas's office when she heard the news. She exclaimed later through sobs, quote, War! I knew nothing of it! This is the end of everything! She wrote, naturally, immediately to Rasputin, who sent a reply dictated from his hospital bed. Quote, Let Papa not plan war, for with war will come the end of Russia, and yourselves, and you will lose to the last man. When Alex showed Nikki the telegram, 
he ripped it up in front of her face in anger at such defeatist sentiment. On the 19th of July, Alex and the children were gathered at the dinner table, waiting for Nikki to arrive. After being made to wait for some time, the family finally saw Nikki enter the room, looking pale and shaken. The day before, the Germans sent an ultimatum to Russia. Cancel the order to mobilise, or it would be war. He told them the news. He hadn't cancelled the mobilisation. And so, Germany was at war with Russia. The day before, Rasputin had written an anonymous letter to the Tsar and Tsarina. Quote, A terrible storm cloud hangs over Russia. Disaster, grief, murky darkness and no light. A whole ocean of tears. There is no counting them, and so much blood. With those words no doubt in the form front of her mind, Alex burst into tears. The next day, the family travelled to the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg for the formal declaration of war. The last time Alex and Nikki had appeared together there in the city had been for the tercentenary. Back then, the crowds were underwhelming, both in size and voice. It was entirely different this time. The streets were teeming with people, with every street, bridge and balcony filled with cheering crowds. The great climax came with a balcony scene, where the family gathered to wave at the crowds. As one, everyone in the palace square fell to their knees in silent prayer and reverence at the sight of the Tsar. Then, after a moment, they began to sing, God save the Tsar. The nation, finally, was united behind Nikki. But only victory could keep them there. From every corner of the Russian Empire, the muster sounded. Hundreds of thousands of young men left their families, homes and livelihoods behind to heed the Tsar's call. The mobilisation was actually accomplished more quickly than anyone, least of all the Germans, had expected, and within a few weeks they had invaded East Prussia. This was the historic home of the German royal family, and a big blow to their prestige. But they quickly recovered, and launched a stunning campaign culminating at the battles of Tannenberg and the Missourian Lakes that saw the destruction of one Russian army and the decimation of another. In all, around 300,000 men were killed, wounded or captured, not to mention the equipment, and the Russians were thrown back. Things went a little better on the front against the Austro-Hungarians, but in all, it was a disastrous start. Denied a speedy victory, both sides settled in for a protracted conflict, but the Russians were woefully prepared for this. Of all the principal belligerents in the war, they were the most poorly equipped, possessed the worst leadership and had the weakest industrial capacity. For every mile of Russian railway, Germany had ten. This was compounded by the problem of scale. German reserves, on average, had to travel 200 miles to get to the front. The Russians had to go 800. For every Russian factory, there were hundreds more German. This meant that, on average, Russian soldiers were rationed to just three rounds per day, and her artillery was forced to remain silent due to lack of available shells. 
In some cases, up to a third of all soldiers were forced to attack without guns, being told to pick up the weapons dropped by their fallen comrades. All the while, German guns roared overhead. They had no boots, because the material for them had previously been imported from Germany. They had no winter coats, because no one had thought to order them. And yet, back at home, everyone was filled with patriotic optimism. Because while Russia lacked many things, it had one great natural resource. Manpower. The Russian steamroller, as it was monikered in the foreign press, would see over 15.5 million men mustered over the first three years of the war, dwarfing all of the other powers. But they were so poorly equipped, and led mainly by idiots and sycophants. Nicky had initially wanted to be in charge of the army himself, taking the ancient position of warrior king, but he had been dissuaded from doing so by his ministers, who urged him to leave it to the professionals. Quite apart from his total lack of experience, it would be better, should defeat occur, for the people to be able to blame the generals and not the Tsar. Overall command of the military was granted to his cousin, Nikolasha, but he was also out of his depth, and the Russian armies were continually on the back foot. The commanders hated each other, and the military situation was dire, but the reports sent back to Saskoselo were rather rosy. They spoke of a comeback always just around the corner, of robust morale and stockpiles of ammunition. When Nicky came to inspect the troops, an entire regiment's equipment would go to a single company, so while the men the Tsar saw were pristine, everyone else went with nothing. I think you get the picture. It was a disaster. Russia seethed with anti-German sentiment. After only one day at war, their embassy was ransacked by a violent mob, and German-owned businesses in St. Petersburg were smashed up and set alight. Anything considered German, from Christmas trees to Beethoven, was banned from public life. Even the name of the capital city was changed, from St. Petersburg to Petrograd, as it sounded a bit too Teutonic. Of course, the most prominent German of them all in Russia was Alex herself. She had no sympathy at all for her cousin Wilhelm, and supported the war and Russia wholeheartedly. She told a friend, quote, Twenty years I have spent in Russia, half my life, and the fullest and happiest part of it. It is the country of my husband and son. I have lived the life of a happy wife and mother in Russia. All my heart is bound to the country I love. But this did not stop the hatred from coming her way. She was born in Germany. Her brother fought for the Kaiser. She was the Kaiser's cousin. How could she not have pro-German leanings? She must be a spy, a traitor. She is the reason why my son was wounded, why my brother was killed, why my father was captured. It's all her fault. These accusations of treachery were widely believed, and there was little that the Tsarina, hidden away in Zaskoselo, could do to counter them. She needed to be out in public, doing good deeds in full view of the people. This is what the other consorts of Europe were doing, but she wasn't. The people couldn't see her, and so the people used their imaginations and let their prejudices run free. But while Alex was hidden away in Zaskoselo, this didn't mean that she was doing nothing to help the war effort. Far from it. She dedicated herself to helping the wounded, setting up a hospital at the Catherine Palace in Zaskoselo, and enrolled in nursing classes along with her eldest daughters, Olga and Tatiana. She said that, quote, 
To some, it may seem unnecessary my doing this, but much is needed, and every hand is useful. Before the war, Alex had almost been bedridden, rising only at noon and rarely moving far from her own quarters. Now she had a new lease of life, up at dawn and training bright and early, winning her nurse's cross in double-quick time. She continued her zeal into her hospital work, and was as dedicated in her work as any in the wards. Anna Virabova noted, quote, I have seen the Empress of Russia assisting in the most difficult of operations, taking from the hands of the busy surgeon's amputated legs and arms, removing bloody and vermin-ridden field dressings, enduring all the sights and smells and agonies of the most dreadful of all places, a military hospital in the midst of a war. Her letters to her husband are full of the description of wounded men that she had helped to treat. In one, she wrote, quote, Very bad wounds. For the first time I shaved one of the soldier's legs, near and around the wound. Three fingers were taken off today as blood poisoning had set in, and they were quite rotten. I fear some are doomed men, but I am glad we have them, and can at least do all in our power to help them. This morning we were present, I help as always given the instruments and Olga threaded the needles, at our first big amputation. Whole arm cut off. I had wretched fellows with awful wounds. Scarcely a man any more so shot to pieces. During an operation, a soldier died. All behaved well, none lost their heads and the girlies were brave, but he died in an instant. It made us all so sad as you can imagine. How near death always is. So you can see here that Alex was really getting stuck in. But while her service is laudable, one has to question its utility. As Tsarina of Russia, Alex had a significant role to play on the home front. In such a time, a royal family's duty is to rally the nation. Above all, to be visible. Alex was useful, more than useful in fact, as a nurse. But his impact was relatively small, contained to just a few thousand soldiers that she encountered and treated throughout the war. If she had played a more public and visible role, like say Queen Mary of the UK was doing as her mother had done during her time as Grand Duchess of Hesse, she could have had a far more significant, albeit less tangible, impact. Yet that was never something that Alex was going to do. She felt happy, content and safe in her fortress at Zaskosalo. But just because she was not making herself visible, it didn't mean she wasn't having an impact. By the summer of 1915, Russia had been at war for almost one whole year. Well over a million of their men lay dead, and far more than that were wounded or captured. In the late spring, a joint offensive by both the Germans and Austro-Hungarians in Poland had sent the Russian army reeling back in what later became known as the Great Retreat. Alex and Rasputin both firmly knew who they blamed for this catastrophe, the commander-in-chief of the Russian army, Grand Duke Nikolasha. Alex hated Nikolasha for many reasons, going all the way back to 1905, when he advised the Tsar to give in to the demands of the revolutionaries. And she also never liked the idea of the army becoming overly loyal to anyone that wasn't her husband. Nikolasha was also a sworn enemy of Rasputin, which only added to the Tsarina's ire. Alex's letters to Nikki over the summer of 1915 were positively Cato-esque in their insistence that Nikolasha must be removed. Here are a few snippets, just from June of 1915. And remember when she refers to the man of God, or our friend, she means Rasputin. 12th of June. Quote, Nikolasha is far from clever, obstinate and led by others. 
Is he not our friend's enemy? 25th of June, quote, Would to God Nicolasha were another man, and not turned against a man of God's. 29th of June, quote, I have absolutely no faith in Nicolasha, know him to be far from clever, and having gone against a man of God, his work can't be blessed or his advice good. Russia will not be blessed if her sovereign lets a man of God sent to help him be persecuted. 30th of June, quote, I do not like Nicolasha having anything to do with these sittings, which concern interior questions. He understands our country so little and imposes upon the ministers with his loud voice and gesticulations. I can go wild sometimes at his fat position. No one knows who is the emperor now. It is as though Nicolasha settles all. These letters, and there are many more like these, accuse Nicolasha of everything from stupidity to treason, and heavily focuses on his opposition to Rasputin. They suggest to me that if he had been an ally of Rasputin's, Alex might well have dropped her opposition, which is utterly extraordinary. It is unthinkable that this would happen in any other major power in this war, that the supreme military commander would be sacked, mainly because the leader's wife didn't like him because he was opposed to her spiritual counsellor. But this is why Russia and Alex are so interesting in this war. In the end, after the fall of Warsaw, Nicky acted and sacked Nikolasha. But then he did something that no one other than Alex and Rasputin thought was a good idea. Instead of naming a new man to be supreme commander, he appointed himself to the position, and made ready to move from Zaskoselo to the military headquarters, or the Stravka, as Russians called it, at Mogilev, in modern Belarus, some 400 miles away. Now, he had some good reasons for doing this. As supreme autocrat, it made sense for him to be at the head of everything, and in any case, all major military decisions would be taken by army men anyway. But this turned out to be a disastrous decision. Before, military defeats were blamed on military men. Now, they were Nicholas's fault. If your husband, son or brother died, it was Nicholas's fault. If they wrote back describing the appalling conditions at the front, it was Nicholas's fault. And of course, he was still to blame for all the internal problems supply and repression. He had placed himself on a higher pedestal, and now everyone was able to throw rocks at him. And speaking of interior issues, with Nicholas now based at the front, he needed someone that he could trust to keep an eye on things at the capital, to make sure that his ministers were doing their jobs properly. And like so many monarchs throughout history, he decided that the only person who could be truly trusted to remain loyal and take this vice-regal role was... Alex, his wife. Suddenly, this reclusive woman, who had no interest in governing politics or elite society, was in control of the Russian capital in wartime. We'll see how that turns out next time. But I wanted to end this show with the letter Alex wrote to Nikki as he prepared to leave the front. It shows Alex at her most triumphant, her most confident, and her most loving for her husband. Note how she pushes him to be strong and confident, to ignore his enemies, be confident in the path he has taken, and urges him to listen to her and Rasputin, and to absolute faith that, through it, she and Nikki will rise triumphant. Quote, My very own beloved one, I cannot find the word to express all I want to. My heart is far too full. I only long to hold you tight in my arms, and whisper words of intense love, 
courage, strength and endless blessings. More than hard to let you go alone, so completely alone. But God is very near to you, more than ever. You have fought this great fight for your country and throne, alone and with bravery and decision. Never have they seen such firmness in you before, and it cannot remain without good fruit. Do not fear for what remains behind. One must be severe and stop it all at once. Lovey, I am here. Don't laugh at silly old wifey, but she has trousers on unseen. Whenever I can be of the smallest use, tell me what to do. Use me. At such a time, God will give me the strength to help you, because our souls are fighting for the right against the evil. It is all much deeper than appears to the eye. We, who have been taught to look at all from another side, see what the struggle here really is and means. You showing your mastery and proving yourself the autocrat without which Russia cannot exist. Had you given in now in these different questions, they would have dragged you out. Being firm is the only saving. I know what it costs you, and I have and do suffer hideously for you. Forgive me, I beseech you, my angel, for having left you no peace and worried you so much, but I too well know your marvellously gentle character, and you had to shake it off this time, had to win your fight alone against it all. It will be a glorious page in your reign, and Russian history, the story of these weeks and days. And God, who is just and near you, will save your country and throne through your firmness. A harder battle has rarely been fought than yours, and it will be crowned with success. Only believe this. Your faith has been tried, and you remain firm as a rock. For that you will be blessed. God anointed you at your coronation. He placed you where you stand, and you have done your duty. Be sure, be quite sure of this, and he forsaketh not his anointed. Our friends' prayers arise night and day for you to heaven, and God will hear them. Those who fear and cannot understand your actions will be brought by events to realise your great wisdom. It is the beginning of the glory of your reign. He said so, and I absolutely believe it. Your sun is rising, and today it shines so brightly. And so will you charm all those great blunderers, cowards, led astray, noisy, blind, narrow-minded and dishonest false beings. All is for the good, as our friend says. The worst is over. Now, you speak to the Minister of War, and he will take energetic measures as soon as needed. When you leave, wire to the, our friend tonight through Anna, and he will particularly think of you. I feel completely done up, and only keep myself going with force. They shall not think that I am downhearted or frightened, but confident and calm. Tell me the impression if you can. Be firm to the end. Let me be sure of that, otherwise I shall get quite ill from anxiety. Lovey, if you hear I am not so well, don't be anxious. God is with you, and our friend for you. All is well, and later all will thank you for having saved your country. Don't doubt, believe, and all will be well, and the army is everything. A few strikes, nothing in comparison, as can and shall be suppressed. The left is furious because all slips through their hands and their cards are clear to us. Now, good night, lovey. Go straight to bed without tea with the rest. Sleep long and well. You need rest after this strain and your heart needs calm hours. God Almighty, bless your undertaking. I clasp you tenderly to my heart, kiss and caress you without end. Want to show you all the intense love I have for you, warm, cheer, console, strengthen you, 
and make you sure of yourself. Sleep well, my sunshine, Russia's saviour. I shall yearn for your caresses. I never can have enough of them. And I still have the children, and you are all alone. Another time, I must give you baby for a bit to cheer you up. I kiss you without end and bless you. Holy angels, guard your slumber. I am near and with you forever and ever. No one shall separate us. Your own very wife, Sunny. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.